Well, welcome. Relax, you know? Yeah, I know. I'm just here to take a load off. Yeah. I fed Hope. Oh, let's... Before I get started... ASMR. <laughs> I, I'm taking my my medicine. I gave some to Hope right before. I just fed it to her like she was a baby. I, I said, know. "Open up." I was gonna have some on the way here, and then I was like, "I was like, am I better at this when I'm stoned or not? Not sure." Welcome to Avant Gossip. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jackie. I'm Hope, and we read stuff and we talk about it. We go down rabbit holes related to art, fashion, design, and then. We get together and gab. Yeah. We love to talk about architecture and design and how it affects uh, your day-to-day. Sometimes our art, too, and we just get into it. Yeah. Um, we are a brand new podcast. We are formerly Fascism Podcast, but this is a whole new deal, so you should really rate us five stars on Spotify. We need that. We need the encouragement, you guys. We are you know just hungry hungry hippos for those five stars and i want to grab them all yeah you hold the power you and you gotta you gotta just do it so what we usually do and what we've done and maybe chime in you guys maybe this isn't the best intro now that we are avant gossip or the best like question but i do just love it Mm -hmm. um we ask what's trending with you and we kind of just talk about our week it'd be great if you just dm'd us and told us what you think it should be if not we're gonna keep doing this it's like it could be like what's i don't even know i really can't i can't i can't think of anything what's your space like yeah what's your what's the fabric of your life (laughs) that still sounds (laughs) like like fashion fashion. but what brush stroke are you painting with this week (laughs) yeah what stroke of life have you taken this week (laughs) yeah what's trending with you hope Trending with me is vulnerability. I feel just cut wide open right now. I feel like the walls that I've put up throughout life to deal with like injustice and to deal with, you know, the like my own pain and witnessing other people's pain. I feel like my the walls have just come down and I'm feeling everything and it's really overwhelming i did some open air crying this morning what's open air crying <laughs> when i just cry out in the street oh yeah <laughs> where you feel the wind and on your tears <laughs> yeah i was just walking lulu and listening to music and you know it's just like an intense song and i'm yeah. just like Um, I think that should be normalized as that's my stance and it always has been. Yeah, it's just been like a bit of a manic week between 
my sister's wedding, which was really chill. You know, it was a courthouse wedding and then we had pizza afterwards. But like I had family in town and it's just like I always get a little emotional after seeing family and it went really well. No one fought. And so that was a relief. I <laughs> I went to dance on Tuesday and had like the night of my life. It was like, I just, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I've just been in this headspace the past year of like finding the differences between me and everyone else feeling like oh if people don't believe these exact same things that I believe or if they don't present in a way that that seems like they're a certain kind of person that like I'm I'm feeling like I'm like approaching activism from this viewpoint of like it's about optimism it's about like like believing that a better world exists and I think like as part of that, I'm also just starting to feel a lot less angry at individual people and a lot less interested in arguing with people and instead just like wanting to find what's the same. Not saying like, oh, I sat down with a Trump person and, and like we like saw to eye. I'm all, it's like not not like that, but just like I'm not really tr trying to nitpick people and be like, oh, well, like if you don't like believe this exact same specific thing as I do, like I want nothing to do with you. I'm just like... I don't know. I feel like I was just getting annoyed. I was kind of like, do I want to keep dancing? Because I'm not even sure if these people are that cool. And then I had all these good conversations on Tuesday <laughs> and all these good dances and feel like I've been a little manic since then. <laughs> and the week has just been very emotional. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I mean, I mean, to me, it's really important to have people around me with the same values. But I get what you're saying. It's not I'm not saying that it's not. And I think that there are, there are things you can only accomplish when you surround yourself with people who have the really same specific goal as you. Um, and there is a question of like how much time do you have in your life for people who um, don't agree with you. But I think it was more that like I was making a lot of assumptions about people mm -hmm. based on thing based on like very little information mm -hmm. and feeling like there's this whole really like honestly diverse group of people that I was like making a lot of assumptions about and I just like had really good conversations with people and like especially I think there were some people there that night that I was like oh yeah these this is like these are the people I want to be friends with yeah and that was encouraging was uh weren't you like weren't you like a little drunk and not to call you out but weren't you like high off the tiktok uh, and a little just was like oh, high, high off being famous and and a little drunk actually um I had one IPA uh. <laughs> um, and I had a quarter of a gummy and I did was it with the right ratio and I had like no sandwich I had like a <laughs> tiny sandwich like one of those little Hawaiian sweet rolls with like a piece of ham on it and so uh, yeah part of like my manic state is that I have not been very hungry um, so so there was that yeah I was I was a little bit intoxicated and also was a little bit intoxicated by being famous on TikTok <laughs> <laughs> and did get recognized like before I even walked in the door of the I building. Mean, there's so, nothing better. Yeah. But then that was part of it. I was like I think part of what keeps me from being open and vulnerable is this like idea that I'm not good enough or cool enough or like I have to like prove myself to people before I'm worthy of their friendship or something and I think like having that little boost of like, well, I'm famous, so <laughs> I'm sure everyone here wants to be friends with me. Oh my God, I I think that's why a lot of people seek fame. 
Yeah. That just made me realize. Yeah, because you <laughs> skip having to like, you go into the situation with a with a sense of like, I'm not saying that this is what I experienced, <laughs> but I feel like you you get to have like some power in a situation and it takes some of the like fear away. Totally. I mean, a lot of people that before they become famous are like really delusional and know they're going to become famous. Well, they all say that in their memoirs, but it's like, well, I've seen, yeah, well, you're right, I guess. But I mean, I've met some people that are like, I'm going to be famous. They're not famous yet. Uh-huh. But I am wondering if it does take that level of like confidence, like just assuming that you're already kind of famous to fill in that role. And that's how they actually just deal with feeling uncomfortable in spaces with a lot yeah. of people. I mean, I think like that's what I've been realizing about people who go really far in things like whether it's dance or whatever it's like it's it's not just that it's it takes being competitive which like is a certain kind of person it's it's like you get to that level because you want to get to that level which means like you are a little like delusional Mm -hmm. to think that like you're going to become a champion of yeah like a a dance that doesn't matter but (laughs) (laughs) anyway west coast swing baby to be exact um anyway what's trending for you jackie um God, rage. I'm just, I feel like I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum and I'm just angry at people, individual people, Mm. (laughs) for not showing up in the way that I think they should be showing up. And I don't know if that's a valid complaint. And I'm working through that because I don't want to act out on anger on people just because I think they're not reaching the goal of what I think they should be doing. And instead, I've just kind of, taken a step back from some people and like really dived into like the people that are doing a lot of work okay you guys it's about palestine but basically doing a lot of work about palestine and stuff like i'm part of hoedown i am the not to brag the co-chair but the point being is um i'm part of a uh line dancing crew and we're queer we're non-profit and it's focused on dancing and there hadn't been a conversation about palestine And I wasn't going to bring it up. I don't know why I wasn't. I really don't know. And I'm still dealing with that with my work, too. I'm like, do I need to say something at work? I'm really just angry. And I feel like we work with urban design. This is is architecture that is built to, like, the apartheid is architectural design. It is urban design. Like, and... Because you are, like, so much of urban design is about upholding exactly upholding the structure and it's like it's actually even crazy because when i was telling my mom about my the my the tiktok i made about denny blaine park it's a long story but she was like (laughs) like weren't you scared to like are you allowed to say stuff like that are you allowed to like you know what i mean because because of the work i do and i'm like i do feel a lot of pressure sometimes to be neutral because because cities don't want to hire you if they know that you don't want to uphold the norm of of power exactly exactly but i mean and i think people have the right to decide on who they want to hire and i but i'm also like as urban planners we need to at least be learning and and like at least understand the structure that we're working within and yeah and educating on like how like settler settler colonialism is literally what where my city is built on what every city is pretty much built on in the US and how it's being played out again 
in lifetime in Palestine. Like, anyways, it's just like something that I've been contemplating about how much I should be saying constantly. And I'm doing a lot of work outside of that to kind of deal with my guilt of not saying and speaking up. But anyways, in line dancing, I wasn't saying anything again, because I don't know why because I don't I'm, I'm not like I haven't been in the group for that long was kind of my reasoning. I don't think I would be the person to say anything. And thankfully, somebody else did say something. Mm. People met and like in the group and were like, okay, well, what are some actions that we can take? I know the board can't take on all this or we can't expect, but we are individuals Mm -hmm. within the group that can do stuff. So we started doing like, we're having like movie nights for members of the, of Mm. our. Oh yeah, I saw that. I saw that Rye posted yeah the like Friday night thing yeah I was like part of that for sure and I'm really proud of the people that are doing that and I'm continuing to be in spaces where I'm not having to be the loudest one where I'm usually in spaces that I am the loudest one yeah and it's exhausting yeah and I'm mad about it (laughs) I'm mad that I'm constantly going into spaces getting really upset and I'm having to like try to promote anger and other people to do something yeah and I'm over it and I don't know how to like I'm done educating <laughs> I'm done and I'm yeah so that's where I'm at <laughs> yeah there's just been a reputation of me like it's coming up especially at my work I know there are some everybody that's up my age we kind of like briefly touched on it but we are not talking about it at work but I know that people agree like are recognizing it as a genocide within our millennials you know but otherwise life has been great <laughs> yeah we really are on the opposite and I'm okay with being angry too by the way I'm not mad at being about being mad I'm but I am just processing my own expectation on others um and then I come back to all these other realities that we're dealing with so it's, it's just a cycle of me just like processing my own anger also just like focusing on doing the the action and like anyways. yeah and I think it's also kind of gets at what I was saying before of like I'm focusing on moving towards the same where it's like I feel like I can't convince people like there are people out there who it's just like this you're not going to convince them right that, like Palestine should exist and so it's like rather than focusing on trying to convince it it's like I'm I just want to instead focus on doing actions with people who already think that way because it's just like Right. Arguing is so hard and seems so fruitless, which brings us to our very uh, uplifting topic (laughs) of the day. I'm just kidding. I think it's going to be a really fun discussion. I yeah, it might not be uplifting, but I would say definitely interesting. I mean, so what I'm talking about, I'm going to what I'm calling the three truths about fascist architecture. That's the title. I don't know if of this episode, but it's the title that I wrote kind of to like work off of and just to give you an I you guys an idea of what it's going to be like it's I think we all know that the apartheid in general is a reflection of how the U.S. was built in some capacities but I really wanted to dive deeper and like look for exact examples Mm. of that you know yeah wait so say that what was the title of the episode again the three truths about fascist architecture okay i don't know if that needs to be the title of our episode that doesn't sound as quippy but it's straight to the point and yeah. that's what i was trying I, I wrote the title first and then kind of worked out from that and it was also inspired from i gotta do a shout out to andrew santa lucia real quick <laughs> <laughs> Are you related to Santa, <laughs> Andrew? <Yeah. laughs> Man, 
when you told me that joke yesterday i laughed so hard (laughs) (laughs) but like it's christmas and i've been hearing santa like everywhere i go honestly some of the at the dog place today they ordered they offered lulu like a salmon treat they're like is salmon okay and i was like why are they talking about santa right now (laughs) um anyway yeah such a cool he his work is really cool i yeah I, i discovered him at the bellevue art museums like design festival um a couple years ago jackie was supposed to come but then she got a car issue on the way oh my god it was so traumatic and his the uh, the piece that he did along with other people was about anti-fascist architecture it was really colorful i just loved like the aesthetic of it as well as the information that was communicated so i'm really excited to learn more yeah he's awesome he talks a lot about anti-fascism um uh architecture and uh, you know, he did a lecture called uh, The Three Tales of Anti-Fascist Architecture at Carnegie Mellon recently, and that's kind of where I got the title from. He does a really, he's just great. He, I, we need more of him in the architecture departments. He works for, he's like a PhD student or maybe he's assistant a professor. professor at Portland, Portland State. State. Yeah, which need- I'm like, yeah, why are there not more people like that? I want him. I want to have had him as a I, professor. I agreed. I mean, I would have not been bullied like I was if he was there. Mm-hmm. And to, I don't know. There's such a fucking, it's such, you guys, I don't, if you ever go to design school, there is an aesthetic that you have to abide by and it's minimalistic. And it's like, that's what they think is beautiful. Right. Lines, straight lines, like clean lines. Yeah, it's, there's, uh, I mean, and I find it, I encounter it in my work a lot, like um, an aversion to color, idealizing of, yeah, what's it called? Danish. Yeah, Danish design, minimalist. It's what's uh, anything else is considered gaudy, ostentatious, frivolous, kind of like, yeah. Color's an important part of, you know, showing difference in each other. Anyways, it's, he does a lot of color too. And he actually wrote a, piece called i i couldn't get it because it's in a journal and you had to pay for those things but it was called color me safe and sound and it's about oh my that. god yeah in his bio he's like i mean we shouldn't not to talk about him like so, so long uh, we let's list out his entire resume <laughs> starting <laughs> anyways um i am specifically looking when i wrote this i'm specifically looking at the apartheid in the west bank I'm going to show three cur- three crucial identifying markers of architectural and urban design that really reinforces fascist and Zionist ideologies. One way that we can definitely tell that U.S. and Palestine are so intertwined is through the propaganda that we've been served. Ghassan Karafani is a well-known writer and Palestinian freedom leader who speaks here to a member of the press. You also hear the voice of Kowami Toure, who is speaking to the media of Nashville, Tennessee, where he was visiting Fisk University. Thank you. 
Listen closely to the questions that are asked by the media, but most importantly, the answer is the same. Won't your organization engage in peace? Why won't your organization engage in peace talks? You don't mean exactly peace talks, you mean capitulation, surrendering. Why not just talk? Talk to whom? Talk to the Israeli leaders. That's kind of conversation between the sword and the neck, you mean. Well, if there were no swords and no guns in the room, you could still talk. No, I haven't been, I have never seen any talk between a colonialist case and a national liberation movement. But despite this, why not talk? Talk about what? Talk about the possibility of not fighting. Not fighting for what? Not fighting at all, no matter what for. Yeah, and people usually fight for something and they stop fighting for something. So you can't tell me even why should we speak about what? Stop fighting. Or, what? Or, or talk about stop fighting why? Talk to stop fighting to stop the death and the misery, the destruction, the pain. The misery and the destruction and the pain and the death of whom? Of Palestinians, of Israelis, of Arabs. Of the Palestinian people who are uprooted, thrown in the camps, living in starvation, killed for 20 years, and uh, forbidden to use even the name Palestinians. They're better that way than dead, though. Maybe to you, but to us, it's not. To us, to liberate our country, to have dignity, to have respect, to have our mere human rights, is something as essential as life. The press paints you, Mr. Carmichael, as someone who advocates a kind of uh, almost guerrilla or civil war of blacks against whites and interprets black power this way. And seems to me this um, could hardly be in harmony with the kinds of objectives that you've just been describing, which are within the political system and not really a warfare against it. Uh, what have you, how can you respond to this apparent real contradiction? Well, I don't. Uh, for me to respond to it would be for me to give validity to the charges raised against me. Uh, scientists dismiss them. Well, how do these <laughs> charges, how do these charges get abroad? You, 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 you do, uh, from time to time, say some things that, uh, sound as if it were a real um, call to march uh, in the barricades and uh, burnings and uh, and uh, destruction uh, and the people. creation of a real uh, violent revolution. I urge black people to fight back. I think that's where the papers get confused from because black people have never fought back in this country. I mean, our churches were burnt, our houses were shot into, our children were bombed to death. We were lynched, jailed, beaten, and we never fought back. And then we say from this day on, if um, white people don't want to be bothered, they just leave us alone. Don't bomb our churches, don't shoot into our houses, and don't mess with our kids. 
Would I be correct in saying then that... Uh, no, I just want, sorry, yes, yes, I just yes, want to finish. Yes, now, the reason why it becomes such a raise in this country is because white people never expected black people to retaliate. They always expected us to take whatever the heat on us and I guess worship them. That was the line from Job. Though he may slay me, yet will I serve him. Well, I see... Excuse me. Go ahead. Well, well I was just about to, uh, in order to uh, understand better what uh, you're saying, Mr. Carmichael, am I correct in saying then that you're saying in so many words that uh, you have been arguing for the right of the Negro to exercise his right of uh, self-defense? Uh, this is, is this another way of... Uh, saying what you really mean by That's absolutely good. I just think, though, that, that it's sort of um, peculiar that uh, you have to emphasize to black people that they have the right to defend themselves. I mean, that in itself should speak for them. The distinct idea that, uh, you know, you're suggesting something far more violent than just self-protection, which I doubt that anybody could argue with. That's not true. People could argue with that. They argued with the nonviolent demonstrations here in Nashville in 1960 <laughs> Architecture is the second part of settler colonialism, the phrase being first you kill and then you build. Architecture is a very big part of colonialism, and I, I cannot emphasize that enough. So our urban design, it's very, it's based, we are what we are built. Mm -hmm. It's how you, it's how you claim space, you put something there. Exactly. Okay, so number one. Physical separation. The apartheid is an African's word meaning separateness or the state of being apart. Literally means aparthood. Physical separation is a big part, obviously, of the apartheid in general. My first example were the walls built in Israel. I think my first time I've ever heard about the walls in Israel was when Trump was like, they're a great example. Oh, wow. For our walls. Oh, wow. <laughs> that doesn't give you a telltale. So where are the walls in Israel? Well, okay, so in 2002, they were like, we need to protect ourselves. Israel was like, we need to protect ourselves from terrorism. And they were like, let's start building walls. And that was the whole argument of where. Because Israel is not to be trusted in any capacity. They weren't just going to, it turns out only 15% of the wall currently actually follows the border from Israel to the West Bank. Only 15% is actually on the border. And it just like winds around basically it's a, a, a chance to land grab and it's it's the wall has turned out to be twice as long as the border so it's like if you two times over just because it's like meandering meandering and it's a land grab it's a way to land grab and so they built that in 20, 2002 they were like we need a wall that's protecting us from the west bank yeah because they think all palestinians are terrorists and that was the claim but again it wasn't a security measure, really. It, what it was, was to redo the line, to mm -hmm. keep pushing West Bank, make West Bank smaller and smaller as much as they could. I mean, and they, to expand more illegal settlements. And and this wall, but it's also just, I mean, like, at, like everything they do, I feel like, what is the point of international law? This was deemed illegal, this wall, by international law you know and then it's like it, but then everyone's like yeah we can't 
it's so like it's it, like pointless i keep yeah. on seeing hearing international the illegally international law and i'm like so what's what what is it, this just seems like a pointless statement to me at this yeah point. i'm never one to be like where are the cops but i'm like who enforces <laughs> this this shit yeah exactly who's who's doing any like what's the point of laws if there's no enforcement okay so most of it you know cuts into not surprisingly our agriculture land you know anywhere there's like any water resources mm-hmm. and it what it does it separates palestinian villages from each other too hmm. so creating kind of isolated ghettos mm. Do you remember this view ever without a settlement? Yes, yes, I remember that. Yeah. I was a child. We used to go there and play. But yeah. after they decide to take it, the land and uh, yeah. do this uh, street, we can't go there anymore. So this is effectively the wall. It's just not a wall here. It's a fence. Yes, is, we can't, yeah. uh, we can't uh, walk. We can't do anything here. If you notice that, it's uh, surrounded by them. Yeah. The yeah. yeah. What is very cruel about this tower next to the wall is that they're designed to hide the presence of the army. So you'd always assume there's somebody looking at you. You see apartheid in action at this moment here. When conflict erupts, the slow violence of the environment is being put into immediate use. Israeli soldiers move down into Palestinian towns and villages from the settlements themselves. The checkpoint hardened and nobody can move through. The border completes around them and the entire territory springs into use. A wall is just basically a physical instrument of violence. There's no reason to have a... The, the borders and walls are, like, detrimental to society. Like, they are very not good for people. Right. They're not good for ecology. Like, it, it, doesn't, it's, it doesn't help anyone. Yeah. Not to be obvious. To be like, you know, walls bad. I mean, those walls are good when they infrastructure a, a dwelling. But when they, like, are to create like in the name of safety people out it's 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 bad yeah schism exactly okay so there was this town in uh budras um is what it's called in it's in palestine and it was on the border of israel and palestine and when they heard about this wall in 2002 they were like oh they're coming for us because they're right on that border they just knew it was going to happen so 2003 the bulldozers come and they are given two weeks to to appeal, sorry, in Israel in court, which insane because Palestine can't vote. Palestinians can't vote. They have no rights. <laughs> so they know what they're doing. Anyways, IDF started to mark where the wall was going to be built. And the people noticed it was going to be confiscated of 300 acres of Palestinian land with over 3000 olive trees mm. and olive trees 
some of these olive trees are like as old as a thousand years old, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like they live for a really long time. The next day, the bulldozer came and destroyed a lot of shit. And Palestinian people of Budras rose to the occasion, about 110 of them to be exact, and over half being women, Palestinian women, which is bad fucking ass. Yep. That's the scene as Israeli bulldozers rolled in to tear down the village's ancient olive trees and make way for the security barrier. Ayad Murad saw that there was nothing else that the village could do except try to, with their bare bodies, stop the bulldozers from uprooting the trees. The amazing part of this story is that the first person to actually be able to break through the Israeli border police lines and stand in front of a bulldozer was his daughter, who was 15 at the time, and who convinced his father that the women needed to join. Well, and she's she's interesting because she, as you say, she looks at these protests. She says, why is it only men marching? Here's a little bit of her talking. We saw the men trying to push the soldiers and everything, and none of them could do that. But I think the girls could do it. And the first day, the Israeli fired tear gas, rubber bullets at these community members that stood in front of the bulldozer. But they stopped the the bulldozer regardless. So that was a big deal. The first day was like a win. And they just, Israeli peeps were like, I obviously, they're going to be here every time there's a bulldozer. So they decided to divert the wall i mean oh, wow the wall which was a big deal that's a big win from that was unprecedented like that like palestinians had been able to, to stand up to the idf i mean yeah in the sense that an actual change happened none of it happened because they went to court or anything it, it was literally because they just resisted they were just physically there and so the wall kind of like wound around just like in a different direction yeah The other example in the U.S. being interstates, like redlining. And we've heard that term a lot, at least you and I and other people that are in, are in urban planning. Redlining is just like a thing that's thrown out there because it's a. it was like the color law came out and everybody was like, have you, you know, right. and then redlining was about it. So for those that don't know what redlining is, it's basically comes from the development by the New Deal and the federal government of maps of every metro area in the country. And those maps were color-coded. And by the first homeowner's loan corporation, which, I don't know, already sounds evil. Homeowner's loan corporation. <laughs> what a group. Like, oh, I can't wait for their Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> These codes were designed to show what was safe and what, of areas and what wasn't um, to ensure mortgages. And... Anywhere where African Americans lived to and show so that, that was unsafe. And so that would affect your ability to get a, a loan. Yeah. It would be risky to insure mortgages oh, there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's how they reinforced, you know, segregation and housing was through that mapping. It, the FHA manual was called the Unwriting Manual of the Federal Housing Administration. And it said that in ca- incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. Mm. Meaning, Gotta keep that peace, you know? 
Yeah. Don't have any any like any pro any issues. Yeah. Yeah. God forbid. This is relating back to our roller skating episode. You should just just go back and read that one. <laughs> it's about liberation, not peace. Is the is the TLDR. Basically, the highways were the best way to manipulate and make sure these just to keep the segregation alive and well with after like you know desegregation started happening and all this stuff i mean like it was just to maintain the market of housing as it was you're saying that like the way the freeways designed the way the freeways like the the reason they went like and bisected neighborhoods was like an intentional thing yeah it was literally follow like most of the these highways follow the idea of the the original redlining like and it would intersect or you know close off black communities intentionally so mm. in in urban settings but my main example being nashville's jefferson street There's a street called Jefferson Street. Um, it's not as, it's like now under a, you know, highway. Because mm. it was split. Mm. <laughs> Those streets under a highway. Yeah, it goes through a highway and they have like, they try to like make it more fun. Um, yeah, you put a mural on the, exactly. the highway. You're like, now people won't mind walking under this loud, dark freeway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly what they did. Um, but back in the day, it was iconic. Uh, Jefferson Street was like known for its music. Jay. Hendrix came to Nashville, apparently, and that kind of connects us to Seattle because Seattle is where he was born. But he came in 1962 uh, to Nashville and... Uh, he lived rent-free in an apartment, which I'm like, the days where you could live rent-free in an apartment, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Just but- before being good at guitar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he was a residence at the Club Del Mor- uh, Morocco with his band, the King Casuals. This is in Nashville. This is- he said that he really had to play because those people were really hard to please. And his 1967 interview with Los Angeles Free Press says, he said, that's where I really learned to play, really in Nashville. Wow. So he was like, the tough crowd made me better. Yeah, exactly. He's like, it's all about competition. Seattleites, like, they're so passive. They won't tell me I suck at guitar. Yeah. Like, they're just, you know. When you come to Nashville, they're just looking at you to, you got to be good. There's just so many people that were so good. That's mm-hmm. why the talent mm-hmm. was there. And it was also the first time he was ever captured on video. He was 22 years old. I just, I'm, I'm going in a lot about Jimi Hendrix, but I just found this out and I thought that was really cool. Okay? I think this is a great, yeah, beside. He was on the show Night Train, which was like Nashville's WLAC TV studios, like local studio start team. Night Train predated Soul Train. All aboard, the night train now boarding, and you have the best seat in the house reserved for you. So let's get rolling to great entertainment. Tonight starring Jimmy Church, the Avons, Pamela Relliford, the Spidells, and many others. And featuring our host with the most, Noble Blackwell. The Commanders, and of course, 
We hope you feel so good, and we want you to join us next time we come your way with a carload of swinging rhythm and blues entertainment on Night Train. That's it, good people. For the staff and the entire cast, Noble B here, saying, in the meantime, take especially good care of yourself and be good to your neighbor. We hope that you'll be around and ready to roll along on the night train next time when Noble Blackwell will be back with more top talent. Sting. And Jimi Hendrix was on that babe. Okay, I think I... Yeah, I, this is making a lot of sense. Why? Because when we talked about roller skating, Bill Butler shows up at that place and he asks him to play Night Train. Uh-huh. And I was looking up Night Train being like, is that a song? Is that a band? But uh-huh. it's it's this, I think, is that's what he was wanting them to play. It sounds like, it sounds like it was like a radio show. Um, oh, but it was a TV show. A TV show. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, definitely was. It was all black casting which was unheard of at the time too but yeah definitely probably local scene music was being played i'm guarantee it jefferson area is home to three historic black colleges i'm very proud of this too tennessee state university tsu fisk university and Meharry medical college and there were a, a ton of other historical black colleges but these are the ones that we still have today and the jefferson street area gave black Americans access to higher education. So this area was a thriving black community. Okay. If you ever go to Nashville, I highly suggest doing a tour with Fisk University. Hmm. It's will give you so much information about the city. Interesting. Fisk was also where John Lewis and Diane Nash went. John Lewis being the Senator, the democratic Senator, which I don't know, like, did he do anything not to be mean, to be rude, but like, he did Freedom Riders, which you'll hear about, which I'm going to be talking about. Their sit-ins, the first organized sit-in happened in Nashville is because Fisk University students, like they were super organized. Hmm. Like Fisk University was absurdly like known as a spot for black activism and organization. As they, as they began uh, receiving some success and one of the really which I think might have been a turning point, was the point when the Fisk student, Diane Nash, asked the mayor right there on the steps of the courthouse. She addressed Mayor uh, West and uh, asked him, did he not consider it? morally wrong to discriminate against people just because of their color. And without uh, hesitation, he said, yes, it it was wrong. And uh, we have him to thank for that stand because that made it it a little easier, I believe, for the sit-ins to be successful. Okay, so yeah, construction of Interstate 40 and 65, which are prominent highways connecting Nashville with the rest of the nation. Okay? Yeah. It sliced this tight-knit community into three pieces, despite outrage from local residents. God, imagine, like, 
fighting and organizing because you don't want your neighborhood to be literally ruined and schismed and then having them do it anyway. Like I just imagine if like, yeah, it's just crazy. That would be so infuriating. So not only did the city federal government want to reinforce segregation, they also want to make the spirit of black Americans like break essentially is what that's telling me. Because it wasn't supposed to, you don't, you didn't have to drive it right in the middle of uh, a black community three times. But like you, they're apparently like, it just seems like really intentional to be, it's just mean. It's like, it's just mean. It's yeah. <laughs> they hate choices were made, you know, like you, that was a choice of, of where to put it. Yeah. So they like bulldozed homes and like this interstate 40 in particular is like where homes and businesses actually existed. Like they had to literally flatten people and push people out of their community mm-hmm. to make this happen. Which by the way, still have like, it's like, we still do that. Oh, a hundred percent. So yeah, apparently the highway displaced 128 businesses and which represented 80% of Nashville's black property ownership. Oh my God. And the number is likely an undercount is what one of the TSU historians said. And the actual toll may have been between 800 and 1,800. Metro grant application puts the number of displaced residents and businesses at 1,400, actually. So residents and businesses. And But in 2020, 2020, <laughs> <laughs> in 2020, Metro decided to work on a cap over Jefferson Street. And they were going to start doing work. And then people were like, are you going to ask the community? Because they were like, oh, we could have done better, I guess. So they're stopping, halting the work, and they're going to try to hire a firm to, like, do more research on North Nashville, which is where uh, Jefferson Street is located and all this stuff. Yeah, I would love to be a part of that firm. So they're going to – you're saying they're going to do a cap? I don't know what that means. It was like, you know – it. I. I think they were literally kind of going to do a version of like downtown like Seattle. Lit I-5. Yeah. Um, to create like a vibe. I'm like, this doesn't really do anything. A cap doesn't really do anything. It's still very, no one hangs out in that park, even though I love it. Well, I mean, a lid can be hugely transformative to a city. Like when people talk about litting I-5 now, they're talking about basically it would like stitch Capitol Hill back with downtown. I'm kind of like, I don't know, man. It's like billions of dollars. And I'm like the outlier at my work where I'm like, I don't know if this is worth the money. But like it would be a huge, I guess it's like, it's hard for me to understand exactly what you're talking about with Jefferson. And like, I mean, I don't think they know. That I mean, they have were, you looked at drawings for the project of like how they were going to do it? I mean, no, they said they had ideas. It, there was no drawings. They were like, we're going to like, you know, like put shelter the bridge that already exists and stuff. What's like the that. goal? Uh, to help mitigate the interstate uh, impact to the community. Interesting. Okay, so now there's a firm that's going in there and they're gonna like yeah. talk through the community. We got to follow the story. I'm I, gonna. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, we, I want to know. Yeah, I think it's crazy that they stopped even like. They were like, oh, we got to like, there was just so many people being like, you didn't actually talk to us about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they, I, by the way, they do have these things that are built in to design where they have to do outreach with the community. And I'm sure there was, 
but I just don't think they knew who to actually talk to and mm. where to do the outreach at. Mm. Um, so it can be poorly done. And that's the thing. There's a lot of stress around um, how to actually do community development. Community outreach can be like really performative. I fucking hate it. It feels gross. <sighs> yeah. Dreams and soaring machine. Catch me around here. Okay, so the second one. Ding 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 number two. Great differentiation of speed and movement. That's that is what makes the apartheid the apartheid, I will tell you, is creating a differentiation. That's a hard word to say. Creating a different speed levels in movement in space. That's how the apartheid exists. And okay. okay, what does that mean? Well, I mean, they made they made roads for only Israeli people to use so some people can get it around more quickly than others yeah so they're speeding up the process of movement in space and cutting into palestinian land while uh palestinians have to stop at checkpoints mm. at every possible turn and their roads are a tunnel that is who had that can be gated and closed mm -hmm. with a key that has is kept with idf so slowing down speeding up mm -hmm. is a very uh, just the core aspect of all of this and i i am i assume this can be done in like a lot of different ways yeah i mean the wall was a big one too i mean interstates are a big one um the ids are what they started in south africa this is how the apartheid started was they were created ids for everybody and it was a way to monitor people mm. and stop people in the street and ask for like permits and like if you have access to areas it was a way to control people of colors bodies period mm. that was just like how that was and that's what the ids are for and that's what they do in palestine they started implementing ids and then 600 over 600 checkpoints in the west bank pop up wow 600 it's such a small place and they pop up at, at any point anywhere you can there's official 600 like what by IDF killed one of these Palestinian 17-year-old boys and all these people during a protest and then all these people came to the funeral and they set up a checkpoint right outside the funeral. That is really fucking grim. It's so gross. And only 36 of these official checkpoints is separate Israel from West Bank. The rest are just like throughout the West Bank. Yeah. Yeah, which is crazy. They're occupying an area that's supposed to be Palestinian. And so you, so these checkpoints, you have to like show your ID, but obviously then you get subject to like whatever the military person is like wanting to do. So yeah. it's like uh, just... These 18, 19 year old, like barely men 
having full control over Palestine. It's like all like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Women. I forget that the women are, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Women are just as cruel and they can do it on their period. So. Yeah. (laughs) Girl power. Torture happens at these. They beat the living shit out of people for no goddamn reason. I mean. It's just like, yeah, cops. It's like cops in the U.S. Yeah. No, exactly. IDF trains the cops here. It's just. That's like they have a yeah. thing, uh, what a, you know, a contract with uh, cities um, all across the U.S. and I think internationally. But humiliation and torture is part of the is part of the checkpoint process. Also, the architecture of these is there's a rotating. Some of these have rotating doors, and there's very a little amount of access that you can get into it. So not does it only humiliate people that don't fit into it, but also means that you can't carry things. There's an intention to the architecture. On every twist and turn of the terrain, Palestinians would encounter a border, a checkpoint, a fence, a valley that they cannot cross. Sometimes you can read politics on the most mundane of architecture elements. Turnstiles in Israel, when they put them as the most important instrument in checkpoints, they've reduced the arm of the turnstile for it to press against the body in case there is anything a person carries. But that creates horrific situations when people who are a little bit larger would get caught up uh, within that turnstile. It's so cruel and degrading and reduces Palestinians to nothing more than bodies. Um, and it's gated to create a single line to, again, slow down these processes. It's like, mm-hmm. it's all done, it's reinforced by architecture. Yeah, controlling the movement of people. Yes. It was in 2007, there was a report that came out that 69 women gave birth at these checkpoints. Oh, my God. And so it's definitely been more since then. So, like, basically, it's like it takes so because they're trying to get to a hospital. Yeah. And they'll get stopped if the lines are too long. They won't. And they refuse. Christ. I know. Insane. Okay. And checkpoint 300 is, is, the, is the worst one. Okay. Um, it's like been documented about um it's like people have died because they're crushed to death for waiting and people wait for eight hours but what it is is a checkpoint in bethlehem and people palestinian people get hired in israel to do work they get a work pass because the economy in west bank sucks because whatever and how do these uh, israeli people exploit like Palestinians is they put in these checkpoints and this checkpoint in particular has so many of these Im- workers that are coming into Israel and some people have to show up at th- like 3 a.m. just to get into their job at like 8. Wow. And it's like people are dangling from the gates or like people are being ribs are constantly crushed. People pass out on a regular basis like just trying to get through like the, yeah. this is like their commute to like work. Yeah. Trying to get through. And it's like they're not driving because they can't drive. They have to walk through. So it's their bodies. And what they Israel does is they have like a 
door that they open and close. And sometimes they like, they've been closing it for like an hour. So people are trying to push through and it's like just fucked up shit. Unnecessary. So stuff. can you not drive? You can't drive between the West Bank and Israel. Mm, Palestinians can't. Uh huh. They will be shot. They will be killed. But yeah, so there's an Israeli road. I mean, South Africa could only, could only dream of these kind of roads. They didn't have that. Hmm. They took it a step farther and created, it segregated the road system. Wow. At checkpoint 300, is just inhumane on so many levels. And they're just trying to get to fucking work. It's like I can barely get myself out the door for like a 10-minute walk. As I think about that too. You know, like... I can barely get to work when I just have to turn on the computer. <laughs> yeah. That's just how they slow down and speed up things. Mm-hmm. That's one way. Mm-hmm. Checkpoints and roads. Mm-hmm. And another example of how that happens in the U.S., of course, we don't have segregated roads. We didn't think that deep, about, <laughs> apparently. Mm-hmm. I guarantee we would have if we could have. I'm sure there was some form of that explicitly in smaller areas, you know? Yeah, yeah. But we didn't. I mean, even today in the U.S., it is it, driving as a black person, but especially black male is scary mm-hmm. it doesn't come without fear everybody's seen what happens to my son you know it was they didn't even want to release that tape my attorney had to threaten them to release the tape and after that tape was released, it just went worldwide. What did you see on that tape? Like, what was your reaction to it? My son was scared when they rolled up. They was He was scared. And he and he, sh- he shrugged his shoulders like this. Mm. They tried to say he was reaching for his waistband. He wasn't reaching for nothing. Like when you roll up fast like that, you scared him. Absolutely. And, and uh, that's what I see. My son he was, was just, scared. like, stuck. He was just, like... Yeah, like, what did I do? Right. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, that that's that's uh, I will never get that vision out of my head. That's devastating. I play it over and over again. Also, with the um, picture of him laying on a gurney, and they would not allow me to touch him because they said he mm. so I didn't even get a chance to touch him or none of that. So, no, no kiss goodbye, kiss, no nothing, no fellow, no nothing. So, they said he was evidence. So, I could. And I don't really know how that works. What ultimately happened to Tamir's body? So, um, I had to get Tamir. I didn't have to. I chose to, uh, I don't really think I told anyone that, but I don't want to leave my son in Cleveland when I leave Ohio. Mm. So, taking him and my mother. So to take him everywhere that you go, yeah. every stage of the rest of your life. Yeah, he has to go with me because uh, he just has to go. I wasn't, I wasn't finished raising him, you know. I wasn't finished nourishing him, and America robbed me. Yep, they robbed me. So when people talk about the American dream, what do you call it? A nightmare. <laughs> Especially if you're black.
So that still exists. Right. We police our roads. It's like we have, uh, yeah, we don't have like quite the network of checkpoint systems, though like we do have checkpoint systems at borders. But yeah, we, I remember going through a checkpoint where I used to live in San Diego. There was a checkpoint within the US. It was like at some point, I can't remember why they had one there, but it was like we, there was a certain place. If you drove there, you always had to like pass through and they would kind of just like look at you and like let you go or you'd have to be like hi we're going here you know but then like Mm. people would get stopped and like you know weird yeah okay so uh there was this thing called the green books um back in the jim crow area have you heard of that there was a movie that came out green books the green yeah the green books they call it the green book but there was like a collection of them there's a movie that came out and it was about a pianist who hired a driver who was white and Italian American dude and they drove around the South and they, what they carried this, what black people got to carry around while they travel was this thing called a green book. And it showed, it told you all the safe places that you could stay and all the places that you could go to. It was a way to navigate, not just the South. We think it's always the South. Like a lot of the sundown cities were actually in the North and West, like most of them actually. Mm. Um, I mean, the South obviously had its own issues, but I think we have this, lie that there was no sense of racism in the north or the west Mm -hmm. anyways it's yeah so that movie in particular was written by the driver the white dude's son and didn't even like talk to the family the of the pianist the black pianist and made that movie and it was definitely like white savory Mm. feeling so don't go see it another thing that they did on the movie is like they would show up to these areas and and they looked like dumps. Like they were they made the plight look like of black people so shitty. And that's actually not the case. There are a lot of thriving, beautiful black communities mm. that had a lot of like outrageously cool stuff going out. Like it just yeah, it tried to make you feel bad for black people. The movie did? Yeah. And in, in the South. Uh-huh. In particular. Anyways. Versus, I don't know, I feel like there's something fucked up about not showing some of the beautiful things because then it's like, oh yeah, white people, like, like everything was so bad, we needed a complete overhaul, Where whereas actually it was like, white people, I don't know, never mind, I can't, I can't. <laughs> well, it's the it. lie of like, white architecture is the most, is the best architecture, it's that lie again of just being like... Uh, com- yeah communities created by other people in other ways can't be like functional or, or beautiful yeah and yeah so but basically back in the day to have a car as a black person black family was a sense of freedom because they didn't have to go into public forums where again they were segregated they were humiliated there was a lot of violence that would happen to their bodies in those situations and in public transit you know train like black only areas like were just known to be disgusting and abhorrent and you know of course then on the bus they were pushed to the back but yeah and so these when people got cars it was a big deal and it was like a source of travel and like and it was kind of it is just interesting to me how much has gone into the way that black people can now travel I mean it's still it's not like perfect at all it's still shitty there's still unsafe areas forks washington is like kkk like there's still areas but it's just like again another way and a tactic that of white supremacy that's like right in our face and we tend to ignore i don't it's Mm -hmm. like literally traveling is a big part of freedom 
And we have tried to suppress that and in the way that we can. Yeah, it's this is bringing up a lot of things for me. So for one, it makes me think of when we talked about um, what was that makeup company, black owned makeup company? It was called like it's a horrible. It was called like fashion brand or it was called or like something uh yeah i know God. i don't remember the name um of it. insert here the i know i know i was like how can we but so they had those fashion shows right so it was a it was a makeup company and they also had these fashion shows for black women and it was just this like you know pretty cool event and culture that was happening and the woman who, who from the johnson family who owned, like was a publishing family publishing company and they had this this makeup brand for black women and they did these fashion shows she was talking about when they were on the road they had to they had this network of like people they would stay with and when well not because they couldn't go to hotels and it's like we i don't know like there was there were they were still producing all these elements of culture like they were like uh like they weren't People don't have to be enslaved to be not liberated. Like they were still doing all these things, but like they couldn't, they had to like navigate through this racist system to do it. And like a lot of that involved, like when they were on the road traveling. Exactly. Yeah. And I I just think, oh, and not to get heady with it, but you guys, theory was a big part of our education. Okay. But to access the world, you have to move. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's just, I don't, I I feel like we're saying these words and I just like, it's so impactful of how we've set up design and how everything in the U.S. has been touched by some kind of urban designer or something by the human aspect and all through the lens and bias of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so what does that look like is what we have now. Mm -hmm. And I just like, I, and that's just, and that's through movement. I just, it gets really crazy to me because I'm like movement is like how they control you and mm-hmm. movement and is everything poli- yeah it's policed in so many different ways even like we police our own movement like panopticon style of like there's only certain ways you're that are acceptable to move through space like it's weird if you like climb a tree in like the middle of a I don't, as like an adult in the middle of a plaza it's weird if you like you know parkour people they <laughs> that is weird <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're only supposed to experience space in certain ways and like move through it in certain ways okay so but one way they challenge this um of segregation of of travel was the freedom riders were created diane nash again my girl from fisk university john lewis got together and they were part of this like program called core i don't know it's called it's like congress of racial equality it sounds boring but nonetheless it was an interracial group of like 16 people that were asked by the government to go out um and to basically check on these Supreme Court filings that they had just passed of basically desegregating like bathrooms, waiting rooms, um, and and enforcing segregation was il- now considered illegal because of all these Supreme Court um, passings. But they put uh, them in this bus to travel and to see if there was like segregation happening, hmm. and if there was like, and of course, as we know, Freedom Riders um, did. There was a lot of violence. There was a ton of violence that they came up to, and it was like. At one point, it became really unsafe for people to keep on traveling. So they did it through plane. And I was like, that's kind of cheating. You have to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was just that's how scared they were at the time. Like people were like, they were doing these freedom rides. They were called freedom rides. I mean, yeah, to travel and to make sure and that people were following the law. Hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it, off, it obviously impacted how like people got to travel is because the freedom riders 
did like what they visited like 400 they had 436 riders participated and there were over 60 freedom rides so wow. there was a lot of people involved things going on another thing i want to map like their route you know oh yeah for sure it's a lot of it's in the south yeah it's freedom riders are an example of the reaction to white supremacy and traveling in the u.s mm. Control of resources is our third one, our third and final one for today. And my first example, controlling resources is part of the apartheid. I mean, of, do we not know this? This is stuff we already know, right? It's stuff you already know, but then hearing how it relates to the city landscape, I feel like gives it a different context for me anyway. Um, yeah, I'm just, I, I do think though, I mean, like the whole goal of the US is to gain resources and still resources. And I just want people to admit that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like, I think that's like the core thing that I get mad about people. I'm just like, can you not just admit they're trying to get gas, not trying to kill right. terrorists? I know. I was having this conversation in my head today where I was like imagining myself arguing with someone. I'm doing it internally now <laughs> um, instead of externally. But I was like of someone being like, well, the U.S. has to spend money on defense because people try to attack us and whatever. And it's like it's just put very simply, we are a resourced nation and are and so we have to spend a lot of money protecting our resources but then we don't share them among the people yeah so it's like what are we even doing you yeah. guys yeah it's very like just look at the math i don't know mm -hmm. i just don't get it that's uh, some real boy math that's some boy math <laughs> that is like, some yeah gotta right. spend money on war so that no one takes my money yeah for sure boy math is let's let's give 33 billion dollars to israel um while we don't have any affordable health care. Yeah. That is some serious boy math. Yeah. Um, okay, so my example for control of resources isn't that large. It was kind of tinier. It was the burning of olive trees. Um, and of course, I'm going to just say the ciphering of petroleum is like in Palestine, it's happening. That's the bigger one. But mm -hmm. I'm focusing on the burning of olive trees because I just feel like it's emotional. It's more emotional. Mm -hmm. um, and like less... Like, people don't think of that as much. Like, people understand oil as a resource that people fight over, but trees isn't as, uh, like, obvious to people. Yeah. Trees are, olive trees are kind of just interesting because they're generational trees. They're beautiful. I love an olive tree. I mean, you know, an olive branch is how you make peace with mm, people. Extend an olive branch. Yeah. There's just um, so much to, and, like, they live really long. Like I said, it's a generational tree. And it takes like, what, like five years for it to grow. And I think another five or something to actually produce olives. So it's a, you have to be patient with the process if you're doing new olive trees. Um, anyway, so October 30th, which was pretty recent, feels like yesterday. We're in December. Weird. When this is coming out in January? Anyways, October 30th, farmer Omar Ganoam, which is I'm probably saying that wrong. So forgive me drove uh, to his lands in the southern area of Bethlehem from somewhere called Al-Qadir. Um, 
And on his way there, he received some news. And that most of his property, which was mainly olive trees, had been completely uprooted and destroyed by settlers. Just. That was this year on yeah. October 30th. Yeah. Just. And this is in the West Bank, to be clear. Um, when he saw he, it, he literally just broke down. He was just like, Ugh. again, these are generational trees. These are. This is the Palestinian people are olive trees like they are like it's a and it's really beautiful because it's something you plant not for yourself, but for like the next generation and for everyone. It's it's like really a, a symbol of community. Yeah. And it's like how they a lot of the it is how they like that is their predominant source of income for the nation for West Bank, like is olive stuff, olive oil to destroy it is to like continue impoverishing Palestinians. Not only did he lose his harvest, which again, I said centuries old. He also, they destroyed his century old house. This was the IDF? Yes. They just came and like, what was the mission? What was the... Settlers do this all the time. This is just them put, trying to push out Palestinians. This is a regular behavior of trying to land grab. And it's not IDF, it's usually settlers, which are completely funded by Israel. They set up utilities, they set up water, they set up their housing, and then settlers will just stand there with guns watching over Palestinians and ruining their crops and terrorizing them every day until they leave. This is one of those examples. They knocked over his century-old, like, like centuries-old, like 500-years-old house. They just knocked it over tore it apart so he didn't have a fucking home on top of all of his olive garden stuff being gone um and this other gar a farmer muhammad abdullah has acres of grapevines which was next to omar's he hasn't been able to pick any of the fruits since october 7th he was told if he goes out there he will be shot on the morning of october 30th nothing was left to harvest because his vines had been crushed into the soil anyway so he was like fuck it the settlers vandalized everything on the Palestinian hill surrounding their colony, the Efrat. In indigenous flora, the, the Palestinian people are the caretakers of their landscape. It's, and I mean, I, there was this tweet that came out recently. It's like, just look at who's caring for the land and who's not. Mm. And that gives you your answer. Mm, yeah. Like, who, like who has a relationship with the place? And it's, yeah, it's. Yeah. I mean, generational relationship to like these. Yeah. Okay, so something about the trees, they're also drought resistant. Hmm. They grow under very harsh conditions. A living reminder of resilience. Can I talk enough about how I love olive trees? <laughs> Even though Hope hates olives. I do hate olives. Yeah, I accidentally ate one recently and I was like, <laughs> ew. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm like, literally, as you speak, I'm imagining myself like woodblock cutting out an, <laughs> a, like an olive tree. I'm like... <laughs> I've been I've been like making stamps in my head like the whole time talking. Uh, this will come out afterwards, but one of our things for Jewish Voice of Peace that we're doing on Thursday is a olive tree paper mache olive tree mm. um, puppet. Mm. So that's gonna be also uh, what are the candles for Han Hanukkah? A menorah, a menorah olive tree puppet thing. Sick, yeah. And, okay, so I also just was, like, curious about olive trees because I was like, olive trees are kind of, like, awesome, I uh -huh. guess. Like, they're the best thing ever. I was like, maybe they're the best thing literally on this planet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was like, Al -Bad 
I was like, so what, give me some more information, you know, going through the rabbit hole. And uh, I was like, what's the oldest olive tree if they live so fucking long, you know? And there's this one tree that lives in, in Bethlehem, because of course it does, was Al-Badawi, which means the great one. And apparently it's believed to be 5,000 years old. Wow. Oh, you were just yawning. I thought you were amazed with your mouth open. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's crazy to me. Wow, 5,000 years old. Palestinians uh, farmers face challenges in uh, uh, the West Bank, uh, particularly in Area C, um, because it's split up in how the walls were built. They kind of split it up in three different things, A, B, and C. And Area C... It's the largest of the zones, and it's supposed to be just for Palestinians. Like, that's the Oslo agreement that they made back in, like, I don't know, the 90s or 2000s. I don't know when. And it was supposed to be, like, gradually giving Palestinians land back, which obviously has not happened at all. It's still fully under U.S. and slash, you know, Israeli military control. And it compromises about 70%. This this sea area compromises about 70% of the West Bank. Comprises, you mean? Sorry, yes. Comprises of about 70% of the West Bank. And again, it was through this also agreement, it's supposed to be like, here's all... I don't know. They, it, it, they're trying to give back the land that was the, the idea. But again, fully so, controlled by the Israeli military. So they agreed to give it back and then they just didn't, yeah. basically? Yeah, this is what they do. Yeah, and that's a lot of like agriculture area farmers haven't even been allowed to to reach like any of their territories in the last month since like october 7th they were like giving leaflets out to these people saying you've reached the border entry is forbidden and dangerous anyone who approaches will see burning trees what the fuck yeah kind of like imagine if like s dot passed out some pamphlet and was like Hey, don't come to this part of the city or else you're gonna we're gonna there's gonna be trees lit on fire and uh, it's gonna get real dicey. I mean, that's the whole thing. Yeah. We can't imagine because it hasn't happened, but who knows? I mean, shit might happen. Acts against farmers have reached a peak on October twenty-eighth. Um and a farmer was shot. So Palestinians pay taxes to the Israeli government. I don't know if they pay taxes or not. Okay. Wait, so then what was the tax you're talking about? When when did I talk about tax? I thought you said there was a tax on agriculture. There's an attack. Oh, a tax. <laughs> oh, a tax. Oh, my God. I was like, and they're raising taxes? <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. I, that's where the line is crossed. Yeah. At least that's what Americans would be line is crossed. Yeah, true. It, this is all kind of done through Hebron. And a little fun fact about Hebron. Hebron is this one place in West Bank that's particularly interesting because it has a very small Israeli settler inside a surrounding area of Palestine, mm. of Baran. Huh. And um, what, there live um, like 800 settlers, that's it, surrounded by 40,000 Palestinians. Okay. And they have about 1,500 Israeli soldiers protecting these 800 settlers. Whoa. Yeah. There's some name for like countries that are completely within other countries. Like I think Lesotho in Africa is one where it's like, a, it's just like a country and then like, which this isn't the same exact thing, but just like a, a similar like land pattern. Yeah. But it's just crazy. That, that That's why Hebron is like kind of a sticky point. If that's like a city that's brought up a lot. So why? 
just to be assholes. They thought they pushed literally Palestinians out of their fucking home, and now the settlers are living inside these Palestinians' former homes. So, like they literally, they've been said they want Palestinians to feel like uh, they always that they have to look behind themselves, mm-hmm. constantly feeling like they have to be chased. That's what they want to keep the feeling to keep up. Mm-hmm. Recently, a 72-year-old man was assaulted and beat the fuck up by some Israeli soldiers. Just, I'm getting to the point, like, they are attacking farmers, people that give a shit about their land, and it's just a regular basis, and it's happening right fucking now. Yeah, that's, like, something that's really struck me in the past few weeks has been the basically the people talking about the experience of the West Bank where you just, like, never know when they're going to come for your home. Yeah. Like, at any moment, they could come and they could just take your land your house and it's and people a lot of people have left obviously there's a lot of refugees that have had to that have left palestine but people also want to stay and it's like as americans i feel like it's hard for us to always uh understand like why it's so totally hard to leave something and it's like imagine if you're literally rooted in land like via tree via like herding sheep and like you use the land and that's your livelihood like or just imagine not wanting to leave your home and and feeling like you don't deserve to have to leave like it's just you have community you have family you have your needs there like you you you're not a fucking tech worker who can just like remote to go like live in mexico city for a year I I don't like that example. <laughs> that's obviously someone in your life. No, it's not. But I I don't like the example because yeah. Anyway, you're not like a tech worker who can just work remotely in Bali for a summer, you know? Yeah, and that's what it really gets me too because I don't think as Americans that we fully understand the meaning of like generational community because we mm-hmm. are a uh, we've built off individualism obviously, but also that individualism is supported by us like being told to move out of the house at 18 being told to go to school outside the city going being told to like you have to follow where the job is wherever that city is like we don't have any sense of the rootedness yeah we think of people who never leave their hometowns as like losers and yeah a, and a lot of them are they are <laughs> yeah i was gonna say well but it's like the but it's because our society says that like that's not what you should do yeah um, in the U.S., and I think that's also another reason, like, it's not like that in Europe, even. It's not, so, like, there's a lot of places in the U.S. This is in particularly has no sense of community or family. Like, you don't, you don't usually, like, get older next to family. Like, that mm-hmm. doesn't really happen. Like, your neighbor isn't your family member or, like, mm-hmm. something, you know. So, there was, uh, it's just happening. There was this one statement that I really wanted to go over and we'll, and I think there's something to be said about that. Um, and... There was this other guy, Sayad Dagger, a Palestinian argonomist. Argonomist? He studies agriculture. Agriculturalist? Wow. Mm, Yeah, we'll say that. Agronomist? Yes. Okay, there we go. Uh, UC Davis, baby. I was going to say, I think you studied in this. I just, my school was a big ag school. Um, I did look into that as my, one of my masters. I was like, big ag, would I want to get my masters there? Anyways. Mm -hmm. um, They also don't have a masters of landscape architecture there. I think that's probably why I didn't do it. (laughs) Um, And Dagger has a quarter century of field academic experience in agriculture research. And he he lives in the West Bank. And he argues that Palestinian liberation is inherently linked to Palestinians' right to self-administer their own agriculture. He's like, that is the the connection. Mm -hmm. 
And for decades, the land has been colonized and the Israeli authorities have been forced Palestinian farmers to obey cultivation methods at odds with their own tradition. So, um, yeah, Palestinian farming has always been a polycultural meaning that the different crops and should grow side by side on one piece of land. Israeli agriculture has imposed monocultures, as do a lot of European mm. styling of mass agriculture. Um, which goes against the natural biodiversity and self-sustainability of Palestinian land, says this guy. Uh, and this is one of the two main reasons why Israeli gives farmers such a hard time, namely that they want to eliminate all traces of Palestinian history, its soil's natural history as mm. well. Mm. Wow. Israeli soldiers have sent out so much white phosphorus that it has ruined the crops for a lot of farmers in Lebanon. Yeah, I've been seeing it talked about as like um, an environmental catastrophe kind of a thing of like if, if, if you care about climate change, like you have to care about the fact that white, white phosphorus is being administered because it fucks shit up. Yeah, exactly. And hundreds of Lebanese farmers and families have been displaced after losing their main source of income. They're all of trees as of late. So it's not only happening in West Bank. It, there is less information coming out about Lebanon, but there is stuff happening in Lebanon from like Israelis trying to just grow its borders, essentially. I mean, it makes me think of like fucking Monsanto, you know, like controlling seeds, like ha patenting seeds and not letting farmers save seeds mm. season to season where it's like this exertion of control. Like, yeah, the what a society loses when they can't have control over the way they grow their food is like pretty immense. For just one branch, I'd search my whole life through. Okay, but another example for the U.S., though, is owning of uh, owning land as a black man, um, as a black farmer in particular. Um, Luke McElroy, a black farmer who owned 155 acres of land in Cherokee County, Alabama, was shot to death in 1949 by a neighboring white neighbor over property disputes. In Ammonite County, Mississippi, Reverend Isaac Simmons, also a black farmer, was lynched by six white men in 1944 when he refused to give up his farmland. And But they thought that he had some valuable oil dis, like deposits or whatever, and so they were like, well, we'll just lynch you. So that's what they did. And um, they ran his son out of town out of the county, so they gained all that land. These stories are some of many stories of uh, from Burnham Noble's archive of just showing how a lot of these land grabs were racially motivated and in the Jim Crow South and highlight the violent theft of black farmers mm. and farmland, often to benefit white farmers. At the close end of the Civil War, black Americans owned very little farmland, so... Of course, that makes sense, right? Right. <laughs> but began to acquire really rapidly. They saw that. Wait, sorry. Say that. What, when it was again? A close the, at the close of the Civil War. Right. So like, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so by 1910, black farmers actually owned more than 16 million acres. Wow. Which was the peak of black farmland ownership. Because guess what? I mean, Edna Lewis, who was a really influential Southern chef, she like 
yeah. was really influential to Southern cooking, yeah. being viewed as uh, a cuisine, whereas people only thought you only knew how to make food if you were French. She grew up in a town called Freetown that was a community of freed slaves and they farmed and like, you know, her cookbooks tell this really beautiful story of like, you know, kind of like living with the land and the way they cooked with animal fat and like, um, it's just, yeah, highly recommended, highly recommend reading her cookbooks. Yeah, I, I have read her. It's really cool. It's really fucking cool. Because guess what? In 1910, that was going to be, 1910 was the peak of black farmers and farmland. And what do you think happened? World War One. No, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) but I mean, uh, white people took it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, not what what happened chronologically in terms of U.S. (laughs) international relations. Exactly. Um, In addition to theft by state state sanctions, state sanctions, violence, intimidation and lynching, black farmers also lost land due to discrimination by banks and financial institutions through the denial of access to federal farm benefits by local administrators who funneled those benefits to white farmers only. Um, And through forced partition sales, black landowners were compensated well below market value through discriminatory tax assessments and non-competitive tax sales and through longstanding coordinating discrimination by the U.S. Department of Agriculture agents who willed power and control over access to credit and essential resources. So yeah, there was various levels of complete discrimination and land grabbing happening to black farmers. By 1997, black farmers lost more than 90% of that, whatever I said, 16 million acres they owned in 1910. So they lost a fucking lot. How did this big drop in black farmers and black uh, farmland ownership, how did this happen? Well, there's a little known legal loophole called heirs property, which essentially allows for a person to buy a interest in your property and then force you to sell the land at, um, at a low rate, or you just lose it because you don't have the funds to, um, to fight in the court. So imagine you have 10 heirs who all have a claim to a property and one of them sells and it doesn't matter how big or small the interest of the property that they sell, someone who bought that interest can now force you to sell all of it. So if it's 4,000 acres and they sell one acre, that sale of that one acre will allow the purchaser of that acre to force the sale of all of the land. And that's um that's pretty egregious when you think about um, millions of acres that have been lost. As I understand it from the documentary, a lot of farmers thought by leaving it to all their heirs, all their children, for instance, it would be better. It would be easier to hold on to, but right. that didn't turn out to be the case. Well, exactly, because their thinking was, and it kind of makes sense, that you would have to get everyone to sign off on the property sale. But you do not have to have everyone sign off to sell one portion of the property you're entitled to. And it especially happens in situations where there's no will or no clear title to the land. And that's where sort of the the chaos sort of comes in with a lot of people being able to uh, have a claim to a piece of property. And of course, as you may or may not know, why is this important? Besides that people are feeding off the landscape and are dependent on the landscape. But also, like, 
land is equivalent to generational wealth. Mm -hmm. So if you have land, you're passing on a a generation of, of wealth to your child and, you know, People like that. Right. And it's like, yeah, whether you're like, it's because you have, you you build wealth through selling homes or like also you're passing on, you could also be passing on like resources, like passing on literal trees that bear fruit. Yeah. It's, and it's just, um, you know, also how we measure worth in our country is, are you a homeowner? Or do you have land? Like land ownership is a sense of worth. Um, and that, that's more of a social thing that we've done to ourselves on a level of like other things. But just to say, yeah, just another way to imply how the U.S. has made sure <laughs> to break spirits and um, segregate and keep land from black folks. Well, and like, yeah, and, and universally, it's like land ownership that's like a really distinguishing class characteristic. Exactly. Yeah. And that's basically the summaration. And so to cover the three, it was physical sub- segregation. Do you know? Walls. Yes. And what else do you know? I'm Rest- testing you. Restriction of movement. Nice. Like speed, control of speed of travel. That's two. And number three was resources. Control of resources, baby. So just remember that and think about how it affects you every day to day. Of course, there's more out there. I, I mean, I'm sure there's like, but those are the three that's, that I saw that were that came through when doing my research the most. Mm. And <clears throat> I just want to state as a person, as as we are designers and we find it very important. This is also going back to Andrew Santa Lucas. Hi again. <laughs> Santa Lucia, right? Santa Lucia. I am sorry. Uh, I read it as Santa Lucia. So when you said Lucia, I was like, I didn't even, yeah, I have no idea. You might be right. I mean, you know, I can't, I'm sorry, Andrew, if you told me in person, I could do it, but I'm guessing looking at it. Okay. So everybody give me a break. Anyways. Uh, he implied, he was like, be a liberator first and an architect afterwards. Because mm. understanding how political ideology, ideologies and your own bias affect built environments. And I think that's something everybody needs to kind of be more aware of. Because te- they don't teach this shit in school. And you have to be kind of curious about why things are the way they are to mm. actually go farther into it. Mm-hmm. But even as an architect, and, and we have the weight of like at least acknowledging our bias. Not that we can do a lot of impact. But if everybody starts to acknowledge their own bias and like understand the roots of how we have the environment that we have. That was that was great. And if you have made it this far in the episode, we're going to go ahead and assume you fucking love us. Mm-hmm. So just a reminder not to transition like really quickly from liberation to like <laughs> capitalism. But uh, Woo. Ow, my, my head hurts from <laughs> from being squeezed through that canal. Exactly. Yeah. Give us five stars on Spotify. And we love you guys. I love you. Hope. I love you. And thanks for listening. I'm not
على أرض تلاقيني أنا لهلي أنا فديهم أنا دم فلسطيني 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 أنا دم فلسطيني 